Hello and welcome to another edition of the Cover Crop Strategies podcast. Great to have you with us. As always, I'm your host, Noah Newman. Big thanks to our sponsor, Verdesian Life Sciences. Let's waste no time jumping right in with today's guest, soil health legend, Jay Fear. My name is Jay Fear. I had worked uh, previously for USDA for about 40 years and always maintained a relationship with the Minokan farm also, uh, which is a conservation demonstration farm just east of Bismarck here. So I grew up on a small grain livestock farm, which straddled the North Dakota, South Dakota state line. And so I always had a love for agriculture and I had a love for plants, plant diversity, animal, animal diversity, um, because I was familiar with it. And, you know, it's how I evolved. And so it seemed a natural fit for my USDA career as well. And so it was kind of the, the start of it for me. So I always always had that type of passion. And then I was a conservation planner, uh, Noah, for many years with USDA. And I spent a good deal of my career on a pickup in gate at the end of the field of the client and the spade. And so that's, that's uh, kind of my short version of, of how that all occurred and uh, got me kind of where I'm at today. Today I do a little part-time work for the Minokan farm. So plant tissue analysis, sample analysis, soils, uh, compiling the data and utilizing it, you know, in our cropping systems, grazing systems, gardens, etc. at the Minokan farm. So that that's the short version, Noah. <laughs> well, there's the origin story. Yeah, I, I I wanted to jump right in about the Minokan Demonstration Farm, a project you guys launched um, in, in 2009. Just if you could just tell our audience about it and uh, what the ultimate goal is and what you guys are hoping to learn from it. Well, the Minokan Farm is pretty unique uh, in the U.S. It's a conservation demonstration farm. You know, it's not a research farm. It does look at uh, long-term monitoring in terms of soils and in terms of plants and animals. And so at this particular uh, farm, uh, the, the owner is the Burley County uh, Soil Conservation District. And so that's rather unique uh, in this country. And so they own and operate. And so at this point in time in my career, I work part-time for them and I help them host groups. And, you know, a normal summer for, for us at the Minokan Farm is going to be somewhere between 30 to 40 uh, groups that come each summer. So mm-hmm. there'll be 30 to 40 days that are set aside uh, to discuss cover crops, cover crop integration, livestock, uh, grazing systems, uh, diversity in terms of the different crops that we take a look at. So we try to return diversity uh, to these fields uh, as well. And then the monitoring that that goes with each of these. So we do a bit of uh, planting green with our low carbon crops. So specifically soybean. And we do a bit of uh, after harvest on the small grains. So we still put some in cover crops, for instance, um, after harvest. Uh, we do 60 inch corn 
with cover crops planted in between. And it's generally speaking, uh, most every time a cover crop combination. So we try to, you know, you're trying to rebuild a landscape and you're trying to bring food and home for the predator-prey relationship. And I think this is, this is kind of a long-term overview of what the Minokan farm hopes to take a look at and hopes to achieve. And ultimately, if it moves our carbon levels in the right direction, uh, we'll lean further into those type activities. But we're never really ever doing um, what I would call a standard methodology uh, in terms of cropping or grazing systems. It's always something a bit more pushing the envelope. And, and I think that's where a lot of the excitement comes in. You're going to see a failure there, no doubt, because you're going to push the envelope uh, a long ways. Uh, then when sometimes we start to see things that evolve, NOAA, uh, that are actually working for us, uh, I'll give an example. One of those items that pushed the envelope a number of years ago was uh, cover crop combinations. And so you, you start to you step outside of the traditional box a little bit and look around and you use monitoring as your guide. And then you start to see um, uh, something that, that increases carbon levels or the soil aggregation, the infiltration. Uh, you start to see an improvement in some of these items. Uh, then you start to move into that, that uh, path a little bit further yet. So that's kind of the gist of the Minokan farm. Uh, it's, uh, it's 160 acres, has 10 cropland fields, has livestock, soil district owns their own livestock, and which is also very unique. And, uh, you know, you're looking at a scenario there where there's two, two buildings. So one's an educational building where we can gather. And a lot of entities, uh, different entities, private and public, uh, will come there and, um, you know, we'll have a bit of a tour. Um, then we'll have some sit-down conversations on whatever topics they would like to visit about. And more recently, Noah, we've added um, uh, an urban conservationist as well. This has uh, created uh, a niche that we probably underestimated. I think we knew it had a lot of potential, but we probably underestimated it because the interest in the groups, um, for instance, the gardening groups that come because we do inside and outside uh, high tunnel and outside gardening as well. And so the urban groups, uh, um, you're, you're looking at a strong interest. Uh, people like to know they have a good quality food and a reliable food source. I mean, I, I think we all know those type things. And, and it certainly plays out um, in the urban setting very strongly. So in addition to our uh, farmer, rancher, gardener, urban conservationist, urban conservation interests, you know, you collectively put all those together and you're probably going to end up with 30 to 40 events that summer and then some over the winter as well. So it's it's all part of a day-to-day activities at the Minokan Farm. Yeah, it sounds like, as you said, a good place to push the envelope and, you know, make yeah. those failures and, and learn from those failures. And and you and you touch on it with the cover crop uh, combinations, the mixes. 
what would you say is, is the biggest thing you've learned about cover crops at Minokin? Oh, you know, there's so much to learn about a cover crop. Um, you know, if I if I think back, Noah, about uh, why, why did we start looking at cover crops? And this has been a little while back now, but it really, it goes back to the resource concerns that we were dealing with. And, you know, in our particular Northern Plains setting, if I just think in terms of maybe the top, let's just take the top four. So to me, they would be wind erosion, water erosion, salinity, and carbon deficient soils. And those, you know, I've got a top 10, but if I just took the top four and you just think about those, the two different erosion aspects, salinity is basically, you know, we need to transpire water in lieu of evaporate water. And then carbon deficient soils, that fourth one I think is universal. So we are in an export business in agriculture. And then how do we offset that? What are we willing to do in our cropping systems or our grazing systems to help replace carbon, to bring that and restore that, regenerate, if you like that word, that's a good one too. How do we do those type things? And so it really started with addressing resource concerns. And you start looking at what a cover crop does or has potential to do in the right setting. It has potential to address all four of those top top hits. And so you start looking at, at, wow, this is, this has got potential. And depending on what we are, you know, willing to do in our cropping systems or grazing systems. And then, of course, it opens up the path for livestock integration because we're firm believers in livestock on the land. And so you start to look at what built our soils. Well, in our environment here in the Northern Plains, we were glaciated half a dozen times. And so you look at what built these soils and we had the the grass, you know, we had the, the uh, high diversity prairie grass here. You know, and we still to this day, you'll have a hundred plus species per acre. And then you add the ruminant animals. Lewis and Clark identified that really well for us in their manuals, especially when they talked about the area from Pierce, South Dakota to Bismarck, North Dakota, and that area, how they could see massive amounts of animals wherever they looked, mostly grazing animals, but then also the predators. And of course, the predators eventually became the rancher, you know, in terms of moving ruminant. And so we, we start to look at what built our soils, and then we start to try to restore a landscape. And if we can you know, most of our cropping systems today, Noah, they're really not capable of restoring the soil. But if we start looking at what built them in our particular region, wherever you are uh, in, in the world, and you start to understand what built your soils, I think we can start to mimic those type environments. And that's when I think we see some positive movements in carbon, for instance. So that that's maybe a long answer to your question, but a lot of the adoption and the, the desire to have a cover crop, it stemmed from our resource concerns. 
Let's take a time out now to thank our sponsor, Verdesian Life Sciences. They have a special message for you. At Verdesian Life Sciences, we believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com. Now, back to the podcast. It sounds like cover crops are an important piece to that that systems approach to soil health that I know you take and focuses on five principles. So I'll ask you, what are the five principles uh, of soil health? Well, the five principles that we've always dealt with, you know, the the first one, and I believe this one should always be first, is armor. Uh, you know, until we stabilize a field, it's difficult to make any other improvements. So I, I always list armor first, and I always try to apply it first. So you, you get the field stabilized. And so when you're looking at armor, <clears throat> if you have a green plant for armor, cover crop, for instance, then you have a carbon inlet because every green plant is a carbon inlet. Well, now you're using more plant diversity and you are using plants during a period of time you probably didn't normally have a green plant growing. So that that's a big change. So stabilizing, because we, we need it in our environment here, we need it to stabilize wind and water erosion. You know, you're going to deal on those forever, but you need to get them suppressed because you really can't improve carbon levels or, you know, even lean into any type of soil regeneration if you have erosion. There is no level of erosion that is tolerable. You just have to suppress it and you have to bring it down to basically no erosion. So our armor would be the first. And then I think the second one would be soil disturbance because we know we know with tillage you're going to lose some carbon. You know, you're going to lose some CO2. So you start taking a look at how do we minimize soil disturbance. So I've got a number of clients over the years that were organic or traditional tillage people. Uh, how do you get from three operations to two? How do you get from two to one? Or how do you get from one to none? And so you start to start to bring that disturbance down and you start to minimize the loss of carbon to the atmosphere. And I think this was a big change uh, initially for us. We're mostly no-till in this region now. Uh, you know, and there's, there's, a, there's a degrees of it, okay? So we have some with some disturbance. We have some, what I would call a no-till system with no disturbance. And so we have degrees of it, but I think the second one is is soil disturbance. We had armor, now we go to soil disturbance, we start to minimize that. Third one to me would be plant diversity. And here's another option where you can bring in a little more diversity by adding a cover crop to what you're do already doing. Even if you took a traditional corn bean rotation, corn being the warm season grass, beans being the warm season broadleaf. If you add a cover crop, you know, a, a preferably a grass, 
if you can have some some grass like uh, rye or oat or barley or wheat or something that either comes in there in terms of fall seeded or during the growing season or something that you can even plant green into, plant your beans green into the next year. Now you're adding a cool season grass. So you got a third crop type. Now you have more different crop exudates that are occurring in the soil. And I think that plant diversity Again, it goes back to, we know here we had over 100 species and still do in our native grassland. So when you take 100 species out, you replace it with, let's say, two, a corn bean, you can see where it struggles to perform the same soil functions that a community of 100 plus native plants can do. So there's really no comparison there. And so anything we can do in our cropping systems to mimic that kind of diversity by adding the cover crop, big change. Fourth one I always look at is continual live plant. So with a continual live plant, you always have a carbon inlet. So the first four to six weeks of a new plant's life, that's really when you're, you're having uh, the exudates put into the soil. So the first four to six weeks, sometimes a little bit longer than that, then eventually plant physiology reverses that it wants to make grain. And so you don't have the, the, uh, the exudates start to taper off dramatically. But the continual live plant always kind of keeps the refrigerator door open for the biology. So they're always able to feed on these exudates for longer periods of time and more frequently during the year. So continual live plant, and it also opens up the door for livestock integration. All these things become a little easier then. So the fifth one, Noah, I look at is um, livestock integration. And this particular one, you know, it doesn't always start out as the most important on a lot of operators' horizons. But ultimately, when they start taking a look at soil health principles and restoring carbon levels, et cetera, livestock start to play a more important role all the time. Uh, because essentially, the, the ruminant is taking these higher carbon materials and, and they're converting them to lower carbon materials. And they're kind of a walking biology distributor on the landscape. And we start to we start to look at the role they play as being somewhat similar to what Lewis and Clark described to us in their their journals. And so I think livestock integration plays so many roles. And if you look at the cover crops again, uh, if you're willing to manage graze them and graze the top half of that plant and trample the bottom half to the soil surface then you're feeding the ruminant uh, and the soil with with that cover crop. And there's always more protein and energy in the top half of the plant, so they're on a higher plane of nutrition. So at the Minokan farm, we like to move them daily. So we'll, we'll move them uh, to a new paddock every day, and then they're always on that higher plane of nutrition. And then we weigh them after each forage change, and that allows us to monitor pounds of beef per acre and average daily gain 
uh, per critter. So you start to get a little more of the economic data uh, in it as well when you do that. But, but those five, armor, soil disturbance, plant diversity, continual live plant, livestock integration, those are the five that as a conservation planner I've worked with for many years. And, and ultimately, they, they help you restore a landscape. And what I like so much about them is their, their principles. They're not recipes. And so there are so many different ways to do each principle because every farm is so unique. Every state and county is so unique. They all have their own resource concerns. and They all have their own availability of everything from labor to, to crop, crop schemes. You know, some have crushing plants for oil and some don't. And some have ethanol plants, some don't. I mean, there's so many different variables. Uh, and what I like about a principle is you can adjust underneath that to make it work for an individual farm. Yeah, that's a good point about about the principles, how it's it's not a recipe. Every operation is different, and something that might work for one operation might not work yeah. for, for another. Absolutely. So we talked to a lot of farmers, and I, this is an interesting debate. I, I think I know how you're going to answer this one, but I've heard some farmers say it's more important to feed the plant and then others say it's more important to feed the soil. So w- which one would you agree with? <laughs> uh, over the years, I've done a little of each. It, it kind of depends on, I think, long-term. Feeding the soil is, is ultimately what we need to do. So by monitoring the soil, it allows us to know, you know what's happening in it. But, uh, you know, we've been, we've been trying to work with... Uh, I think of it as uh, Elaine Ingham's uh, philosophy from the viewpoint of uh, microbes, carbon, and nutrient. So when you're looking at a cropping system, I like to look at it from that viewpoint. And so when you do that, sometimes you are looking at uh, uh, taking maybe some sap analysis and you're understanding if you're short in something. And if you are, then you can start taking a look at uh, addressing that as a foliar. So there's times that I feel you're doing, you're doing both. And, and ultimately we're feeding the soil when we bring in the principles, you're, you're, you're really feeding soil. You're, you're restoring that soil. And so it's mostly with carbon exudates in terms of diversity of plants and in terms of the uh, cover crop, integrations all of that is feeding that soil but then there are times in the cropping system where you are looking at that plant uh, as i mentioned earlier maybe using some type of analysis like a sap analysis etc and then most likely you're going to do some kind of foliar so long term generally speaking i think you're feeding the soil but there are times where I would say, yes, you're also going to feed a plant to achieve an objective for that particular year. And so I see a little bit of each, but the long-term goal and objective to me would be to feed the soil. There you go. All right, bringing it back to cover crops now, let's do a little bit of uh, cover crop myth-busting. So what what would you say (laughs) is maybe one of the bigger misconceptions about cover crops and something you've learned about them uh, over the years? Well, I think that I'd probably start with that one, Noah, with uh, my own thoughts on cover crops um, 
2009, we started the Minokan farm, but prior to that, we also, through the soil district, had a five-acre plot where we did a lot of work on. And so if I go back a little bit further, I think it was 2006, we did our first combinations, okay? And and I'm I'm looking at cover crops. It's a drought here in 2006, and I'm looking at cover crops as, my God, why would we plant these? Taking all our moisture, we're already in a drought. How are we possibly going to take a look at, you know, making this cover crop evolve in addition to cash crop? Seemed it seemed impossible. And of course, we we had moved into some no-till systems prior to that, and we started getting some cover on the ground. We basically we were starting to finally hydrate our soils. And what I didn't see coming at that time was that when we brought in the combinations, these plants helped helped each other. And that was just, that was one of my aha moments in cover crops, that this was not something that I was putting in place that was going to take every last bit of nutrient and water. This was something that was going to cut down our big evaporation rates. It was going to give me carbon in the soils. I didn't understand the bigger picture of it initially. It took me a while to understand the whole plant physiology of the covers. And so when we talk about from the viewpoint, well, it's just, is it going to take some water? Yes. But there's always more than one side to, to uh, a resource concern or a question or or anything like that. It's also going to improve our salinity. It's also going to cut down our evaporation rates and we're gonna have more transpiration. Consequently, you're probably gonna, if you get a large enough area, it might even show up in your humidity a bit. All of these things are on the table in the bigger context. But if the question is simply, well, does it take my water? Yeah, it's gonna take some water. But you got to look at the whole bigger picture on why you're doing this. And initially, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I had to get educated on cover crops and I had to start to understand what they could do because initially, in my opinion, well, this is going to cost me some extra money to bring this in as seed costs and then labor costs and equipment costs. And what I had to see was I had to see that it would show up in the monitoring end. And it showed up. It it showed up. And so we finally started moving the needle a bit in some areas of resiliency. You know, we talk about resiliency, but to actually achieve it and to see it, that that's different. And to do that, we had to improve carbon levels. Well, once we improved carbon levels, all of a sudden we became less concerned about the water aspect because now we're cycling, we're cycling nutrients, we're returning carbon to the soil. All these things are played out so differently because I think we had accepted a degraded resource. We just accept this is the way it is. We have to minimize everything because this is the way it is. And now all of a sudden it opened up a door and I was happy to walk through it. Yeah, you've touched on this throughout the interview. Everyone has a why to what they do in life. Uh, Why is soil health so important to you? Well, I think because I was um, 
if I go back into the early part of my career and I go back into the 80s and into the 90s, I, I often think I kind of wasted the first half of my career because I was treating symptoms. And these symptoms were, you know, I was putting in structures, physical structures in terms of waterways and diversions. Uh, you, you're building, you're building a physical structure to help this water <laughs> leave the land. And instead, we needed to be working on how do we change uh, by bringing in soil health principles to help us get the water into the profile. Because when we got an inch of rain, we didn't get an inch of rain. Most of that ran off because we had sealed all the pore spaces up. It's kind of a standard joke now uh, when I talk to some of my old clients and you say to them, how much rain did you get? If, let's just say it rained the night before. And you say, well, how much rain did it get? Their answer is now all of it. <laughs> and that is the greatest answer on earth uh, because it changes everything and so you i think that's really where where i think that stems from noah yeah jay this has been a great conversation half hours just flown by i know you're a bit <laughs> a busy guy so we won't keep you too much longer but bef before we let you go is there anything um to look forward to this year or any upcoming uh experiments you're doing at Minokin that you're really keeping your eye on that's that's got you really excited anything you could think of off the top of your head well i think the two that uh, we're just kind of completing uh planting green uh work um uh, over um that was about over a three-year period and we're just kind of winding that down and then we're ramping up fostering life and fostering life we're working with uh, blue dasher farms out of south dakota to identify everything that's alive in our landscape and so i'm talking everything from soil biology to the insect world vertebrae invertebrate uh, plant diverse plant uh, nutrient uh, everything that is alive and plays a role so we're going to be concentrating on that for the next two years and uh, that's bring brings in cover crops and the cropping system simultaneously so you're we're looking at 60 inch corn with covers and cover crop combinations and it's a whole um it's a lot of monitoring, but I think it's going to be some good information for us. And uh, again, we don't we don't do research, but we do plant monitoring and soil monitoring. And so we're really trying to get this life inventory. So fostering life is going to concentrate on what's alive on your inventory on your um, landscape, and how do we provide food in a home. You know, if people want to keep up with the latest at Minokin or maybe even want to pay you guys a visit, uh, where can they go to learn more about the uh, Minokin Demonstration Farm? Well, I would suggest minokinfarm.com uh, is our website. And then our YouTube channel is Minokin Farm. So YouTube, uh, we get a lot of hits on, on it, Noah. Um, if you go to YouTube and you do a search on Minokin Farm, it's probably going to pull up... Um, a lot of different uh, videos from different speakers we've had come in on various topics, everything from cropping systems to grazing systems to cover crops to gardens, etc. And uh, those have been those have been 
widely used uh, by a lot of people to kind of stay current with what's happening. All right, that's going to wrap things up for this week's edition of Cover Crop Strategies. Once again, thanks to our guest, Jay Fear. Great stuff from him. Thanks to you for listening, and thanks to our sponsor, Verdesian Life Sciences. Don't forget, for all things cover crops, head to covercropstrategies.com. See you next week. <laughs>